The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. It's, uh, it's, it's fun and interesting to, to preach uh, texts that preach themselves, and that's what we're going to be in this morning. Um, in case you are just jumping in with this, uh, we've been working through the book of Nehemiah, which if you have your Bible, it's uh, in the Old Testament near the front, the other side of Psalms, than uh, where most of us kind of tend to hang out. Charles calls it one of the deep tracks in the Bible, one of those like... Uh, you know, the kind of deep secret tracks nobody ever talks about on, a, on an album. He's a music guy, that's why he talks that way. Uh, he's a lot cooler than me, too. That's why he, that was his, uh, his illustration. Um, and so what was hap- what's been going on is Nehemiah, he was the sommelier or the, the food tester, the wine tester, the cupbearer is his title to the king of Persia, the most powerful king, most powerful man in the whole world at the time. Persia was like the Mac Daddy country at the time. They conquered everybody. They were in charge. They were kind of running the show. And he was a Jew, and the Jews had been conquered and taken out of Judah and before that Israel into captivity. And we'll get to that in a second, why that kind of all went down. And he grew up, somehow moved, worked his way up in you know servanthood till he's like... You can't get much higher if you're going to be a servant than the cupbearer to the king. Uh, you're eating good food. You're living in the, in the castle. You have the ear of the king. Uh, you have influence. You have power. Things are going pretty good for you. I mean, you're drinking the best wine in the world at the time. Uh, it, it's, it's a pretty sweet gig. And then one day, some of his buddies come back from a trip to uh, Judah, to Jerusalem, and he says, how are things going down there? And they say, things are not good, man. It's, uh, the, the walls are torn down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire, and the people live in reproach. They're embarrassed. It's, uh, it's embarrassment. And that, for some reason, um, broke Nehemiah's heart. Whenever he heard about the state of God's people and how things were, it just broke his heart. And whenever I see that, he uh, it really makes me think about Myrtle Beach because whenever he, whenever he gets to Jerusalem, he sees people who are just kind of adrift in life. Like they know like life isn't like all that it should be and all that it could be, but they're just kind of floating around and accepting whatever kind of existence they can eke out. And, and sometimes that's the story about Myrtle Beach, isn't it? Like people are hanging around and they're just kind of eking out life or they're playing a lot of golf, they've retired or uh, maybe they're just uh, waiting tables and hanging out and just kind of killing time and you ask people about what like is going on in their life and they just are just kind of generally adrift. Uh, they know like, man, my life should be better, I need to do more, I need to whatever, but they don't know what that it is and they, they just kind of hang around, just kind of adrift and the reason that happened, I think, in Myrtle Beach is because you come here to Myrtle Beach, and almost all of us came here. I'm one of the, like, 16 actual locals that live here. But that most of us came here, and we came here, or our parents came here, looking for the endless summer. Because they vacationed here, they visited here one time, and they thought, man, wouldn't it be cool to live here? And then you move here, and, and you know, the first year you hit the beach all the time, and it's great. And then the second year, you hit the beach a little bit less. And the third year, like, this place is a dump. I don't want to live here anymore. And so then you're going to try to move away, which is fine if that's what you're going to do. But I, I, I think that instead of just, like, being a people 
who just passed through the area and used up the beaches and used up the golf courses and used up the beautiful resources that we have here at the Move On? What if we were a people who, like Nehemiah, our heart broke for our community? Our heart broke for a people who are living in reproach. They didn't have the infrastructure that they needed in order to really excel in life. The walls were torn down and the gates were destroyed. And if the walls were torn down, the gates were destroyed. And you're a city in this time uh, in world history. You were, you were nothing. It was, there was no real future for you there because you, you had no sense of security. Without security, you couldn't really do much else. Anybody, any band of marauders or enemies could come in at any time and take your kids, take your livestock, take your money, take your house, take you, and you had really had nothing to do. You had no way to put up a fight. And so Jerusalem was really kind of the armpit of the Persian army at this time. But yet, Nehemiah's heart broke for that city. And he left the luxury and security and the power and influence that he had in the palace of the king of Persia and went to Jerusalem in order to build the gates and to build the wall. And what we pick up in the story today is it's been 52 days and they build the wall from day one. Ryan over here, he's a, he, he's a head of construction for Ryan Holmes, and, or, I'm sorry, uh, Ryland Holmes. And he, uh, I mean, he going to build a wall or a house is one thing, but Nehemiah going to build a wall or a house would be like me, where like putting up blinds, anything that requires me pulling out a screwdriver or particularly a drill, like I feel like I've done something. If there's any sort of sawdust around in the project, it may just have been just drilling a hole in the wall and putting a screw in it. Like I feel like I did a project. And for certain, that's the kind of guy that Nehemiah was and he shows up because God puts a burden on his heart and 52 days later after they start, after they break ground, the wall has been built. But the story doesn't stop there. This is only chapter, uh, that, this, that happened in chapter six, which is where we were last week. And there's more of the book coming. And, and here's the reason why, because when Nehemiah came to Jerusalem, he didn't come just to build a wall. He came to rebuild a people. He didn't just come to rebuild a wall and to rebuild gates. He came to rebuild the people. And so in chapter 7, it's just most of it is just a lot of names. You can look at it and go home and study it. I'm sure you already have and studied all the genealogies of all the people that are mentioned. But it's mostly just a bunch of names. At the beginning of chapter 7, after they've built the wall, he says, like, okay, so we built the wall. Let's kind of let's set things in order now. And so he puts a governor in charge of the area, two governors, that to share the job. And then they uh, gets a count of the people, gets a count of the money, figures out where things stand like a good leader does. And then in chapter eight in verse one, the real, this is kind of the real meat of the whole book right here. So he's planned, he's prayed, he comes to Jerusalem, he rebuilds the wall. Uh, but then, then this is where the heart of the matter comes in. And this is where we come in also as believers in Jesus Christ who are here, a part of a church plan or just checking it out or for some reason ended up in a gym on a, at an elementary school on a Sunday morning and you're wondering what's going on here. I don't know what, I came to play basketball and these guys are, this guy's talking. Um, this is where we come into the story. Uh, chapter eight, verse one. And I'm gonna, we're, we're gonna work our way uh, prayerfully and quickly through this whole chapter because it just kind of preaches itself, but, you, but that said, I'm still going to throw my two cents in there and what helped you guys kind of 
help us all kind of understand what's going on. And all the people gathered as one. Once again, sorry, it's not on the screen. You have to actually have your Bible or app, and if you don't, you could share and get close to somebody that you don't know beside you right now. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gates. So that's kind of an interesting already off the bat that it says that all the, all the people gathered as one man, as one man. So they have this sense of unity together, of purpose. So they're coming together. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now this is an interesting turn of events because the reason that the, their, their parents and their grandparents had ended up in captivity, first of all in Babylon and now in Persia who took over Babylon, they're sort of the, the big dog and then the really bigger dog comes along and, and controls everything. The reason they've been taken into captivity is God told them of the very beginning of his deal calling Israel out to be his people, he said, look, here's my laws. Here's the way I want you to conduct your life, to set you apart for the people around you. And first of all, understand you have to worship me and worship me only. And if you do that, and if you do these other things that are sort of an outgrowth of that, Martin Luther said, if we, if we keep the first commandment, which is worship God only, then we're going to end up keeping all the rest of the Ten Commandments because they all just kind of fall in line. But he said, if you worship me only then it's gonna go well with you. He called the land that they moved into a land flowing with milk and honey. He said, but if you don't, it's gonna go poorly with you. And I'll disperse you and spread you across the world and I'll send you out of this land that I've given you to, that is to flow with milk and honey for you. And the people of Israel, and later on it was two countries, Israel and Judah, they just went crazy. In the book of Judges, it says that they did what was right in their own eyes. And that's sort of like the history of Israel and Judah. It's just like mostly just running away from God with intermittent little glimpses of coming back to him. Lots of running away, little intermittent coming back. Lots of running away, little coming back. And they just keep on, every time they run, they run further and further and further. And they're worshiping anything and everything except God. The God, the God that was set up in the temple in Jerusalem, he, his presence dwelled there, but yet they just ran across all kinds of different ways. And isn't that kind of all of our stories here? Like Jesus Christ came and died for you and me, but how many times have, just in the past week, have you and I chased other idols? Have chased trying to find identity and value in dozens of other things except Jesus Christ? John Calvin said, the heart of a man is an idol factory. It's always trying to construct something to worship, something to put my value and identity in other than Jesus Christ. Anything, anything I can possibly find. And if you, you will find it in your work, you will find it in your kids, you will find it in romantic relationships, you will find it in your golf game, you will find it in other forms of athletics, you will find it in your sense of fashion, you'll find it in your beauty or your lack thereof, you will find it in the car that you drive, the neighborhood you live in, or your performance, or how people accolade you, or the, the, your ability to decorate a cake, or keep your lawn perfectly manicured, we will find all kinds of things in order to put our identity and value in other than Jesus Christ, and some of them are crazy things, but to each of us, they are so precious because we want to find something, because all of those things we can control, right? I can control, though my neighbors probably don't agree, I can control how nice my lawn looks, but I can't control God because he's greater and bigger and mightier than me, and so when I want to worship something and 
get my identity and value from something. I want to find it in anything other than him that I possibly can find. And the people of Israel were doing the same thing. The people of Judah doing the same thing. They ran all the way. And God, out of love and grace and compassion for his people, said, all right, that's enough. I'm going to disperse you to show you just how bad it has gotten. And so for them to now come back to the city of Jerusalem and then they, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses the Lord had commanded Israel to them was already an amazing thing. It's a pretty amazing and in these days kind of weird thing that Christians gather, not just here in this smelly gym at this elementary school this morning uh, with metal chairs and you guys like 20 feet away from me right now like it, but all across the this city all across the world people are gathering today to worship and sing together and hear somebody talk which is just kind of silly isn't it unless the word that we gather, are gathering around is something that's greater than you or me if Jesus Christ, if God is the highest value in all the universe, and as Augustine said, St. Augustine said, to our hearts were made for you, and they are restless till they find rest in you. And if that is true, then his word that he has proclaimed to us is the most precious thing possible. And the reason that we gather every week to sing songs about him, many of which came from Scripture itself, and to hear somebody get up and read Scripture and expound Scripture to us, and we get together in Bible studies and talk about the Scripture, the reason the Christian life is built around the Scriptures is because those are his words to us. They are our connection to him. They reveal him to us, and that is more precious than anything else in the world. So that's why they said to Ezra, Come, teach us the scripture. Verse two, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. So it's kind of interesting. They didn't gather at the temple. because They gathered outside the water gate, which they're probably the reason why. We don't know exactly why, but probably the reason why is this verse, it tells us that both men and women and all who could understand, that means like children and anybody came to hear, and the reason why was because the, the, the temple was kind of segregated. You had the court of the Gentiles, and so the Gentiles could go that far, and only a Jew could go further. Then you had the court of women. The women could go there, and they could go no further. And the further you went in, the more and more selective it got. But they gathered outside, I think, outside the temple, which was actually outside the city, because they, it was important enough for all the people to be there, women, children, men, everybody gathered to hear the word of God. And that's why back in the back or out in the hallway here, we have docs of kids. It's not a, a little uh, babysitting operation while the important people are in here doing the important things. We believe they are, can be disciples as well, so they're back there being discipled according to their level. All who could understand gathered. And they are preaching the gospel to them right now in a way that they can understand back in the back. Verse 3, and he read from it facing the square before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand, oh, sorry, uh, 
facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. So he preached, he read, not even preached. So no clever stories and no cool illustrations, nobody like coming in a zip line and like, like cool pyrotechnics. He just got up and read the scriptures. And then we, so the time frame here would be about six or seven hours. So all of a sudden, my 35, 40, 42-ish, 43 minutes that I stretch it sometimes doesn't seem quite as long now, does it? Maybe, maybe it still does seem as long to you. But he got up and he, he read the scriptures from the, the, from the early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and all, all who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. What we're seeing in this story is the beginning, not just of uh, people coming to hear somebody preach or somebody read the scriptures, but we're seeing the beginning of a revival. Maybe you've heard that word before. If you have a church background, maybe it was like something you did in the summer or the fall and you had a special speaker in and we, we went to church every night or maybe you have some kind of weird understanding. Maybe you picture like people swinging from things and like crazy things happening and people holding snakes or whatever your picture, maybe you have no picture of revival, but what a revival is when a people of God are just kind of sleepy, just kind of drifting around. Maybe they generally love God, but their lives aren't really like sharp and on fire for him. Whenever God visits his people and breathes into our midst and awakens us, and all of a sudden we see like, you drive here and you see the sky and you see the trees, but the difference between that and you say, oh, that's pretty, or you just drive through, we don't even pay any attention to, the difference between that and the song that we sang, when I look around and I see your awesome wonders, then sings my soul. All of a sudden, God has done something in your heart. He has awakened you. He's breathed into you life, and you see the universe for it really is. You see him for who he really is and his might and his beauty and his power. You see yourself for who you really are, as sinful and separated from him, and yet he bridged the gap between, between his beauty and glory and us and our sinfulness and pulled us to himself and our hearts erupt in love and thankfulness to him and it reorients our entire life and a people, not just individually, but a people together are awakened. That's revival. And that's what we want to be a part of when we're planting this church, not just to gather a few people here and there, but we're praying, God, would you breathe upon us and would you breathe upon the Myrtle Beach, Grand Strand area and awaken people and draw them to yourself. That's why the, the ears of the people were suddenly attentive to the book of the law. They found a hunger inside them for what God had to say. And Ezra, verse four, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose it's interesting, and you, when you, uh, if you've ever been to uh, Europe or maybe seen some of the kind of old school cathedrals in some of the older cities in America, um, any of the Protestant churches, which came out of uh, the whole, came out of the Catholic Church, and there was an awakening, a revival among his people, that when you see them, the the pulpit. Not just a little music stand like here, it's usually something that's high and elevated above the people. And the reason was not because the preacher was a rock star, the reason was because the people recognized that the power is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so they elevated that above everything else. They said the preacher who is expounding the word, he's going to stand up there, not because of him, but because of that book that he's teaching us from, that he's leading us from. That's the authority. He's not. So we're going to set that above everybody just to remind us. Not only is the word always above us, but just as a reminder today physically, it is like physically standing above us, and we are literally sitting under the preaching of the word, coming to God with empty and open hands, saying, would you speak to us and would you fill us, which is what happened. Um, it says when they, uh, we're going well, to come to this in a second, this says that they were standing, they raised their hands, probably like this, to, to say, our hands are empty, we're coming to you, God, not the preacher, not Ezra, we're coming to you, God, to speak to us. All that we have are yours. Our hearts, our minds, our ears are all yours. Ezra stood on the wooden platform they had made for his purpose, and there were 13 people who were standing beside him. We don't really know who they were or what they were doing, but we think that it was possibly there since he was reading for six or seven hours. They probably took turns reading the word together. And we're going to come to us in a second to see how they did it. We think that they read it in little snippets to the people, and they would have a pause between, and we'll see how, why in a second. Verse five, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. This book, not the book itself, but the message and the one who wrote it to us is so important. And we should build our lives around hearing what he has to say from it. That, that's why when we gather the word, the scripture is at the center of all that we do. That's why I don't get up here and just talk for five or ten minutes. Because I could get up here and tell a couple of funny stories and have you guys engage, but what I have to say, what I have to think is really a very little lasting effect. But what God has to say to us through the scriptures is incredibly important. It's important enough to bank and build your life upon Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people, and as he he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. That's the purpose of the book, is to bless and to show us and to declare the great God. And all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Not because I am doing it, but any time that somebody's getting up to preach the word or read the word, it's an act of worship. Whenever you gather in the morning or at night or at a lunch break or whenever and you open your app or you open your Bible and you begin to read, we should read with an act of worship. With either physically or in your heart, your hands stretched out open saying, God, speak God of heaven and earth, speak to me. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Then it names 13 more people in verse 7 who were Levites, who it says they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And so what we think happened here is these 13 guys, their jobs, they were like small group leaders. 
where we'll be starting back up our C groups in the fall, which is what we call our small groups. We're meeting right now, guys one Wednesday, ladies on the next Wednesday. This is sort of like their guys group or ladies group or, or C group that we're going to have in the fall. They, they went through the crowd and started talking to people and saying, hey, he just read this part. Do you understand it? Do you, do you get what he's saying here? And people said, hey, I have a question about this. How does this work? How do I do this? How do I do that? I've never heard this before. I didn't know I was supposed to do that. What does this mean to me? And they would talk about it together and figure out this is what it means. They explained it to the people. And that's what we hope that we're doing here in our, in our gatherings on Sunday morning. It's what we, I hope we're doing when we gather in our small groups. And it's what I hope that we're doing every time that each other, that we're gathering together, whether we're grabbing lunch or coffee or just hanging out with each other. That's why when Paul talks to the Christians, he says, speak to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which you don't want to hear me sing to you. And I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying we should be preaching to each other the word of God and explaining it to each other. We should be asking questions of each other. What does this mean? Hey, I was reading this today. I was, uh, John and uh, Charles has been telling me, hey, I've been reading in, Sam, in, in Samuel. I'm in 2 Samuel now, and this is what it's saying. And we should be talking with each other about that constantly, day in and day out, while the people remained in their places. I think that's a picture of, like, it, it's not, all of us aren't called to be preachers. All of us aren't called to even to be small group leaders, but we are but we are all called to be Christians in whatever field and whatever neighborhood that God has called you in. You stay in that place, but we figure out what does it mean to us in those places, in the neighborhoods, in the jobs that each of us live in and do. Verse eight, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. The, the, what we should be doing every time we gather in a large group or a small group and we are gathering out throughout the week, we should be having this question, how do we, how do we become a people of the book? How do we become a people of the word, pointing each other to the scripture, talking about what God is saying so that, our, so that we can hear him and our lives can be more and more conformed into his image as he speaks to us and change us? Verse nine, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. You know, the first thing that, the, that God's word does to us is it shows us, um, when we first start to see him for who he is, we see, as I already mentioned, we see ourselves for who we are, and we see his greatness and his glory, and we see our sinfulness. And it should, the first move that should happen should be to break our hearts. You know, if, if I've done something to Megan and I've said something wrong to her, if I've treated her poorly, my heart should be broken whenever I see it. There's been a couple of times, uh, or actually it was, we're about six or seven years into our marriage and I finally, she'd been trying to tell me for a long time, but I just, I'm a hard-headed guy and I didn't understand what she was saying. It finally hit me and I realized that the way I talked to Megan and the way my sort of attitude to her just kind of said to her, I wish you weren't the way you are. I wish you would just be what I want you to be. And if you were, then things would be, go well between us. And I never, I mean, I, that's, the way I, that's the way I was acting, but I never understood the effect that had on her until one day in a conversation she got it, able to get it across to me and whenever she did, I realized, like, this woman I love has been hurt by the, the way that I've talked to her. It broke my heart. But the goal isn't to stop there. 
The goal is the repairing of the breach between us. And the good news of the gospel is not only are we sinners separated from Christ, but through Jesus Christ, we've been reunited to the Father. And that's very good news. He's, that's why they say, don't mourn and weep. Because the law, the words that he's reading from, wouldn't just, wouldn't just contain the Ten Commandments and all the other laws that the Jews were supposed to be obeying. It would have contained the story about how God chose them. It would be the story about how God rescued them from Egypt out of slavery and led them by fire by night and a cloud by day. How he opened up the sea and walked them through and led them to the promised land. And that's the good news of the gospel to us. Not just that we're sinners separated from Christ, but that through his penalty paying death on the cross, he has brought us out of our sin and our slavery and has reunited us to the Father. It's good news. And that's why they tell them, um, that he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine. It's there in the Bible, I'm just saying. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to your Lord. Isn't that interesting? He says, because this day is holy, because this day is holy, go home and have a feast and celebrate. And then he says, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The life of a Christian isn't always full of like, it's not like rainbows and unicorns and like sparkles every morning when you wake up. It's full of hardship and difficult times. But in the midst of the hardship and the difficult time, the Christian can rejoice because of the story that we were just talking about. How in our darkness, when we are separated from, from Jesus Christ, he paid the debt to bring us back to him. So therefore, the life of a believer and the life of believers together shouldn't be a bunch of sour-faced people. It should be a life of genuine and deep and abiding joy, even in the midst of sorrow and pain. Because we know that the, that the banquet table is spread out before us, and at the end of the age, we are all going to be sitting there. And so our lives should be previews of that banquet that is to come. There should be joy in our midst. The joy of the Lord is our strength. It's an interesting thing. It goes deeper than happiness. The joy of the Lord can uphold you even in the midst of tears and heartbreak. In your life, you're either coming out of suffering, you're going into suffering, or you're in suffering right now. But that's just the way life is, isn't it? But the life of a believer doesn't say you're going to be free from suffering. It says there's going to be a joy that surpasses all knowledge because of what he has done for us. And as we gather to celebrate on Sunday mornings and sing songs about his nature and character that remind us of who he is and what he has done, as we open the book together and we study it and we read it, as we gather at the table and remember what he has done for us, as we break up into small groups through the week and do that, that, that our life is, should be a continual banquet that is eating from the table of his goodness for us. And our lives should be marked by that. Verse, uh, verse 11, so the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. That's the great message of the gospel. 
the ending of the sentence is not grief and sorrow. The ending of the sentence is joy that's created by the gospel, by the good news of what he has done for us. Verse 12, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. When we understand the words of God to us, it will cause us to live a life full of joy and celebration. And there'll be just like this kind of continual sharing of joy back and forth. That's why believers, when you read the book of Acts, have you ever read it? And it says they didn't count what they, what they had as their own, but they shared freely, freely between each other. And after, as a modern Americans who like live behind security cameras and security systems and privacy fences, after you get just to the kind of shock of that, how com- like a commune, like a weird commune that sounds, and you get beyond that and you wonder like, why do our churches not look like that? It doesn't look like that because we're grasping hold of things all the time because we think like this is it. Because we're trying to find joy and value and identity and all kinds of things that we can physically grasp and hold. But when you understand that what Christ has done for you is the true treasure, that he is the treasure, that not the treasure just of of him dying on the cross, but the treasure that you've been united to him and have found him to be worth everything, whenever you grasp hold of that, you can spend freely and give freely of your time and energy and money and possessions between each other because I don't have to grasp that tightly anymore. I can be free with it because I have a greater treasure than all. Verse 13, on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. So they said, like, not just one day, let's come back and do it again. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Uh, so what they discovered is, in the next few verses, we're going to jump through it, jump over it. Uh, you can study it yourself if you like. But they discovered that God had told them, hey, because I led you out of Egypt and you lived in tents in the wilderness, every year I want you to build these kind of like booths, kind of like, like a little, little tent hut kind of thing out of, this kind of these kinds of woods. You kind of, sort of, you sort of seen, a, you seen Winnie the Pooh when they make the house for Eeyore as kind of the, the sticks kind of held together. You kind of build a little house and you go and you live in the house for a week to remember, to remember what Christ had done, what God had done for them in leading them out of Egypt and into the promised land. And that time in between when they were just sojourners in the wilderness. And that's kind of what we do. It's actually a very similar thing to what we do every week when we gather to sing, when we gather to study the word together, and then especially when we gather around the bread and the cup. We remember, and particularly in the bread and cup, we physically remember what Christ did for us. You know why? Because we as humans were prone to forget. So every week we gather, the rhythm of the Christian life is put together as such to constantly remind us of what we're constantly forgetting. So when today, later on, when you take the bread and you dip in the juice and you partake of communion, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, let that just physically remind you that Jesus Christ came and physically died for you to unite you to the Father. It's a reminder. Verse 18, and day by day, from the first day to the last day, Actually, let me just throw the, the end of verse 17 together. 
Um, it says that they, they, for the first time, actually, since the days of Joshua, when they first went into the promised land, um, they, uh, they, they, or, they observed the Feast of Booths. In the ver- end of verse 17, it says, and there was great rejoicing. You know, when God speaks to us and we obey him and we find alignment with God and what he has called us to do and called us to be, it's, you don't do so gritting your teeth. You do so with great rejoicing because you found, remember that quote I gave from Augustine? Our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. That's the joy that they're talking about. Verse 18, and day by day, from the first day to the last day, that's during the feast, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly, according to the rule. They got together solemnly to hear the word of God proclaimed. You know, there's great need for awakening. Each of us here, most likely, um, we find some dullness in our walk with Christ. There are some days that we're just kind of do it gritting our teeth. There's some days or weeks that pass and we just kind of forget the whole thing altogether. We're just kind of in autopilot cruise control. There's great need for awakening in each of our hearts individually. There's great need for awakening of the church of Jesus Christ in the Grand Strand area because quite frankly, I think a lot of our churches, a lot of, uh, I've been a part of it all my life. We're just kind of, as Christians, we're just kind of sleepwalking through life. There's great need for awakening among your neighbors and my neighbors, among your coworkers and my coworkers. And the only way that comes, people who have never met him, who don't know the beauty and grace that's found in Jesus Christ. And the only way that happens is through the word of God coming to them. And how can they hear if, they, if it's not preached? And how can they believe if they do not hear? The only way is for the proclamation of the word of God, whether it's the proclamation like this, a proclamation to a large crowd, or a proclamation of you sitting across from them having coffee and just telling them about what God has done for you and for them in the gospel. There's great need for awakening. The only way that happens is through the proclamation of the word of God. That's because salvation comes to us outside of ourselves. None of us here could pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and find our way back to God. It only could come as God came and breathed life into us. Theologians call it an alien righteousness. It comes from outside us. There was no righteousness you had on your own that could bring you back to God, that could clear your name. It could only be the righteousness that Jesus Christ exhibited in his life and then in his death that could stand between us and God and be the, the righteousness that covers us. And the gospel is the means by which we are connected to that. It comes from outside of ourselves. And that's why we need to gather weekly and talk with each other about the gospel, about the good news of Jesus Christ to remind us constantly, to hear it constantly come from me. That's why when the scripture it says, it doesn't just say confess your sins to God. It says, confess your sins one to another. Do you know why it says that? Not just so you could be embarrassed, it's so that I could go to John and say, John, hey, I did this to you, or hey, man, I am messing up in this, and I need to confess this to you, and John can, in Christ's stead, by, his, by the authority of his word, say, Jesus Christ died for your sins and has covered it. I need to hear that from outside of me. 
And that's what our gatherings, is what our community should, should look like. The same gospel that connects us to Christ at the beginning to help us put faith in him is the same gospel by which we grow. There's no growth apart from the same way that you become a believer. You don't become a believer and then work your way real hard like, okay, I'm going to become better in my sex life. I'm become better in my Bible reading. I'm going become better in my time management. I'm going to put all this stuff together and hold it all together. The way you grow as a believer is the same way that you become a believer. That's through repentance and faith in response to the word of God. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes by hearing in hearing through the word of Christ. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17 says, but as for you, he's talking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's the scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There's a story of uh, after Jesus Christ is crucified and he's risen again and only a couple of people have seen him. A couple of his disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus and they're talking as they're walking about all that's happened. Jesus Christ was, Jesus was killed and how... I don't understand how this all were working together. I thought he was the Messiah, and now it's, he's gone and he's dead, and I don't understand. It says this man walked up to them, started talking with them. They said, hey, what are you guys talking about? They said, haven't you heard? And they told him about Jesus, how he had risen in stature and got a following and said he was going to die and rise again, and then he was killed, and now they don't know what's going on, and and it says that he then, it says he, he started to talk to them from the, from the scriptures, from the beginning all the way to the end to show them how it talked about how the Christ must die and suffer and, be wrote, and rise again. And it says then in verse, um, in verse 28, so they drew near to the village by which they were going and he acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. For it's toward evening, and the day is now spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave, to, gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight, and they said to each other, this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked on us on the road, while he opened to us? scriptures did not our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures and told us about himself did not our hearts burn within us the scriptures show us Jesus it's the story of our connection to him it's the means of his communication to us. And when you open the book, he opens your eyes. When you open the book, he opens your eyes. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us? God has called us to be a people of the burning heart. Hearts that are inflamed with the presence person and love of Jesus Christ and the means by which that happens 
is us opening the book that he opens our heart and our eyes. And that's why the scripture is at the heart of every song that we sing, prayerfully every sermon that we preach, every time that we gather on Sunday mornings, every small group we gather in. Why? Just because we want to study a book? No, because we want our hearts to burn with this. We want the people around us to hear the story. We want to be personally awakened, and we want the people around us to be awakened. And the way that happens is by opening the book. And he speaks to us and reveals himself, and our hearts are changed, and our eyes are opened. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.